Well, imagine you've just traveled back in time to the year 1999. Scientists invented time travel. The government sent you back to stop the 9-11 attacks. They figured two years should suffice. So there you are. You're back in 99. You're trying to stop the September 11th attacks. The only problem is you first have to convince people that you're from the future and that you know the future. Otherwise, people are just going to think that you're crazy. So how would you do this? How would you convince people that you really came from the future and everything you're saying about the future is true and trustworthy? You should act on it. Well, you would start by convincing people, that, namely by predicting the immediate future. You'd start making little predictions, and as they came true, they'd hopefully start to believe you. They start small with some near events. So, for instance, you might predict that during Super Bowl 33, it'll be Denver over Atlanta, 34 to 19, with John Elway being the MVP back in 99. Or you, pre- you could predict that, predict that Lance Armstrong will be the first winner of the Tour de France, or rather his first win. You'd start small in this manner, but people might think you're just getting lucky with some sports bets. You'd have to amp it up and predict some real disasters. So you might predict that there will be two earthquakes in Turkey that will kill 14,000 people. Or you would predict and urgently warn officials that on April 20th of 99, two young boys will storm into Columbine High School and start shooting. Hopefully you could stop that. But as you keep making little predictions like this, hopefully they'd start to think that you're telling the truth, that you're real, that what you're saying about the future is actually legitimate. Your goal is to stop the 9-11 attacks. It's still two years away, but by making these little predictions that come true now, hopefully they'll believe you. Now, what about you? If you're in the reverse situation, you're some Pentagon official and you've got this guy who claims he's a time traveler. He's making these outrageous claims about some 9-11 attack and you don't buy it. But everything he said about 99 just come true. Everything. Would you start to believe him? That maybe he is from the future telling the truth. You'd maybe act on his predictions. I bet a lot of you would. It's really along these same lines, actually, that you should similarly believe what the Bible says about the future. And granted, there are no time travelers, but the Bible certainly makes a lot of predictions about the future, about things to come. But why why should you believe these predictions about things to come? Well, you could cite the inspiration, the authority of Scripture, and just call it a day. Or you could legitimately point to the many other predictions the Bible has made that have already come true, have already been fulfilled. The Bible is actually filled with hundreds of prophecies that have already played out. Of course, some critics want to claim that these prophecies were written after the fact because they're so stunningly accurate. But there are several irrefutable examples where biblical prophecies were fulfilled hundreds of years after being written down to the T. So only one explanation for that, that the one true God is behind the Bible. He is the author of Scripture. And that's actually one of the main functions of prophecy in the Bible. That's why God has included it. He's showing you, yes, of course, things to come, but also he's letting you know he's in control. That he really does declare the end from the beginning. That history is his story and he's writing it. And he's telling you even before it happens. Through prophecy, so much of which has already been fulfilled, God is testifying that he is God and you should listen. He's working all things out according to his sovereign plan for his ultimate glory. And when it comes to the end of the story, the end of his story, well, that too has been written. It's already been written. It's not a question. It's not a mystery. 
it will come just as God has foretold. And speaking of that end, that's what we find Jesus speaking of in Mark chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, take it, open it now to Mark chapter 13. We're continuing to make our way through this chapter, the Olivet Discourse, as we go through Mark's Gospel. We've been in this for a couple weeks already. And at this point, we don't have that much time for recap, so just get the past three sermons and you'll be up to speed. But in short, just a few days before the crucifixion, the disciples, they come up to Jesus with some questions about the end. They want to know, when will the age end? And he tells them. He tells them about the time leading up to his return. And last time we saw how that future time period will begin. It's one of great wrath and suffering and judgment and calamity upon the earth. We know this as the time of tribulation, you could call it. But it's only just the beginning. He's just telling us how that time starts, the beginning of the end. But now we're getting into verse 14 this morning and there's a clear transition. He's telling us about the second half of that time of tribulation. And things get markedly worse The storm is greatest right before the end in verses 14 through 23. He tells us the things that will take place right before he returns, before the end comes. Again, he's telling us and his disciples these things to come because he wants them to know. And in particular, there's one key event. They ask for the sign. He gives them one key event right in the middle, this turning point, and that changes everything. That signals the end is upon you. And everything will be different. We want to spend our time this morning looking at these verses, finding out what, what is this one critical turning point event, understand it, to explain it, to see what Jesus says about these things to come. So it's all that being said, we're just picking up where we left off in the Olive Discourse, Mark 13, and we're starting this morning at verse 14. So let's read together Mark 13, verses 14 through 18. He's continuing on. He says this, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. The last time we covered verses 5 through 13, which detail several signs of the beginning of the end. And there Jesus describes how the end of the age will dawn, how that time will begin, this tribulation time. Specifically, this time will be marked by, we covered false Christs, wars, natural disasters, persecution, worldwide evangelism, martyrdom, and apostasy. It's all from verses 5 through 13. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning of the end. This merely signals that the end, that last age, has begun. Jesus calls this time, he refers to it as merely the beginning of the birth pangs. It's just beginning. But as labor progresses, uh, as the second stage begins, active labor, things get much, much worse. And we come to find about Find out about that time this morning. There's a clear transition in verse 14. It's marked by this phrase. He says, when you see. He's pointing to something now very very specific, unmistakable. It's a sign. The disciples asked Jesus for a sign, a sign of the coming of your kingdom, of the end of the age. 
And this is something very clear, very discreet. When you see this, you know everything's about to change. This is very close to the end. And what is the sign? Well, what is it that we are supposed to see? He says in verse 14, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. That's it. That's the sign. When, when that is seen, you know like, that something's about to happen. This is getting serious. That's the sign. Seeing the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. Everything else in this passage after that is just given in relation to that one event. Verses 14 through 18 gives the reaction to that event. When you see that, basically run away. Just flee, hide, run. Once that happens, run away. And verses 19 through 23 gives the result of that event. When that happens, well, soon to follow will be calamity, deception, destruction, and great tribulation. But as you can observe, everything else following this little passage hinges on that one event. The abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. Now, I remember being a brand new Christian my freshman year of college, reading this passage and saying, what? What does that mean? What does that even mean? What's he talking about? What is an abomination of desolation? We don't use that word like normally, so what's he talking about? And standing where it should not be, what's that all about? Where is it supposed to stand? Where is it not supposed to stand? It, It just doesn't make sense. And of course, if you're a new believer or if you don't have a solid foundation in, in the Word, it's not going to make a lot of sense. You might be a little lost. You're not going to get a lot of help in the text because no further explanation is given by Jesus of this event in Mark 13. So how do you make sense of this? You just read that. You likewise might be confounded by this, this statement. You know what, what does this mean? Maybe you're unfamiliar with studying end times and what Jesus is saying, so... Obviously, this morning, I want to help shed light on what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage. You know, if this were the only time this event was referenced, then we'd have a a hard time figuring it out. We'd have no greater context for, for his words here. But this is not the only time this event is mentioned. You could look forward to the book of Revelation and learn a whole lot. Almost all of the book of Revelation is given to detail that future seven-year tribulation period. And and for sure, you're going to see a a great intersection between what Jesus says about the end here in the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation. They're they're much in the same. But I don't want us to look forward just yet. Instead, we first need to look backward. When Jesus was saying all this, he wasn't looking forward to the book of Revelation. It hadn't been written yet. In his mind, he was looking backward. He was relying on older revelation when he gives this statement. He's building off of something that's already been said. It doesn't come out of left field. It comes out of the Old Testament. And I'll just say this. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament underpinnings of this text, then you are going to be lost. You're, you're not going to get it. So it seems to me that's what we need to do here. If we want to really understand and make sense of what Jesus is saying here in Mark 13, especially about this whole business of the abomination of desolation, and that's our text for this morning, well, it seems like we first need to go back to the Old Testament and find out what's what's he relying on, what's he building from in making this statement. And that it's so essential, because I'll tell you, the number one way people go wrong when studying end times is by neglecting the Old Testament. And we don't want to make that mistake. So so let's do this. 
I'm going to give you an extended introduction. We're going to leave Mark 13 for a little bit and go back to where this abomination of desolation is found in the Old Testament. And if you get this, if you get that Old Testament foundation, then this will just make perfect sense. It'll just fall right into place. It'll be obvious what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 13. So the key is really found backward in the Old Testament. So let's do this. Keep a finger in Mark 13. We'll come back at the end. But I want us to spend most of our time now back in, do you know where? Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Start there. Daniel chapter 2. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Daniel. Find your way to Daniel chapter 2. And as you're turning, I'll fill you in on a little background of the book of Daniel. Daniel was among the many Jews taken captive to Babylon. Israel had lost the land. They were taken captive for 70 years. But God was with Daniel. He led an amazing life of faith and service. And some of the greatest stories of faith are found in the book of Daniel. It's amazing. In addition, though, several times God revealed to Daniel visions of the future. Daniel is a heavily prophetic book. God wanted Daniel and thereby Daniel's people, God's people, to know his plan for Israel, for the nations, and for his kingdom. In essence, God gives Daniel a basic roadmap of human history. Daniel was writing in the 500s BC in Babylon, and, and God tells him what's going to come for years after that, hundreds of years after that. And the order of events, there's all these different visions, but the order of events, it's always the same in these visions, these coming kingdoms. For example, in chapter 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. The statue had a head of gold, a chest of silver, a torso of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And God reveals to Daniel that this statue represents the coming kingdoms of the earth. The head of gold represents Babylon. The chest of silver represents the Medo-Persians. The a torso of bronze represents Greece, and the legs of iron represent Rome. And that all came true. But that fourth kingdom, though, Rome, it changes. It has a second form signified by the iron and the feet, or that rather the iron and the clay feet. Part of it will be strong, part of it will be weak. Notable are these ten toes, which we learn later represents this, this federation of ten kings. They come together and they rule the world. After that, then comes the end. Then comes God's kingdom. And that's represented by a stone that crushes the whole statue. And if you're in Daniel 2, look at verse 44. It's at the end. He says, In those days, or rather in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. And inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So that's, that's a little snapshot. God gave Daniel this snapshot of the coming kingdoms of the world. From 500 B.C. onward, you've got the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... And then the end comes. It's God's kingdom comes after that. Now, when you hear this, what really catches your attention is this business about that last kingdom before the end. 
and of the feet and the toes made of clay and iron. What's that all about? Everything else that was said in this vision, we've seen paralleled in human history except for that. We haven't yet seen this federation of ten kings come along and rule the world. And we certainly haven't seen God's kingdom come in its fullness. So we're left wondering with this last little bit, is that still future? Is that still future? Well, as you keep reading in Daniel, we, we get more, we learn more. It builds on these. Next stop is in Daniel chapter 7. You can turn there. Daniel receives another vision telling of these coming kingdoms. Only this time, instead of a statue, it's a vision of four beasts. But it's kind of the same. The first beast represents Babylon. The second beast represents the Medo-Persians. The third beast represents the Greeks. The fourth represents Rome. But once again, that fourth beast takes on a new form. There's something different about that last one. In fact, in Daniel 7, verse 70, he says that the fourth one, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That sounds just kind of strange, but we know it's obvious it's parallel to those ten toes, these ten kings who unite together to rule the world. But here we get something new. A little bit more is added. Look at verse 8. He says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Again, expect nothing but strange language. But if you see what it represents, you have this kingdom with ten kings, and they unite together, they rule the world. But then comes an eleventh. And he takes over. He takes over from the ten. He rules. Daniel is especially disturbed when he hears this. He just, he doesn't get it. And in verse 9, he asks, he questions. Verse 19, he says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying. That one just catches him like, what is going on with this last thing? You know, the ten horns and then the one horn. What's it mean? And God tells him. God tells him the interpretation. And that's in Daniel 7, verse 23. So look at this. He says, Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Verse 28, at this point, The revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale. But I kept the matter to myself. You know, and Daniel, he's just receiving all this. When he first heard it, he's just confused and scared. And maybe that's you right now. You're confused, you're scared, you don't don't get all this. It, It can be a lot if you're new to biblical prophecy, but let me try and summarize. So here we learn at the end that there's something different about this last kingdom. It takes on a new form. It's like Rome 2.0. 
And notable is this one ruler who rises up and takes over from the other ten. He rules the world. He's known for blaspheming against God, waging war against the saints. His will be a reign of terror for God's people. How long will his reign last? He says in verse 25, for a time, times, and half a time. It's a poetic way of saying three and a half years. Three and a half years. After that, though, thankfully, he'll be judged. He'll be ended, and God's kingdom will come with his saints on the earth. Well, now, though, we know we're talking about the future, because that's yet to come. This fourth kingdom, which started as Rome, takes on some new nature. It has a second, you could say, revived form. It will be led by a special figure, and if you haven't figured it out already, yes, this little horn, he is, in fact, parallel to, to what, who we call the Antichrist or the beast from Revelation. It all lines up. It's all the same person. For three and a half years, he will devour God's people, and then the end will come. Then God's kingdom will come. And Daniel 7 talks about that too. Look back and get this. Look back at verse 9. It's back in this vision. He says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. He gets this vision of God himself sitting on his throne, ready to judge, to judge the world. The beast is judged, they're done away with, and then the kingdom comes. And look at verse 13, right after this. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Would you look at that? In this vision, there are two heavenly figures. One of them, the Ancient of Days, is just God himself sitting on his throne, ready to judge. And you would expect that God would receive the glory in the kingdom and reign on earth. But no, there's a second figure He's called one like a son of man. And he receives the kingdom and the glory and the dominion on earth forever. All the people serve him. You read this to us, like, well, that that makes perfect sense. We get that. That's just Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, who is worthy to receive the kingdom and the glory because he too is God, God the Son. He will come to earth, defeat the beast, judge all evil, and establish an everlasting kingdom for his saints to reign. He is this Son of Man. And by the way, side note, back in Mark 13, when Jesus goes on to talk about his second coming, do you remember how he describes it? He says in Mark 13:26, he says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's talking about himself, and so is Daniel. So look, what's the point so far? That even back in Daniel, in the Old Testament, God, he's revealing the end. He's telling you this is how the the story ends. He declares the end from the beginning. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. But this is how history ends. This is how his story ends. It always points to, no matter how bad it gets, Christ, the Messiah, 
the Son of Man, returning to reign and rule over God's people in righteousness forever. It's foreseen long ago, and you can bank on it. Now, I hope this is starting to help you. I hope this is giving you a little picture of, of things to come, a greater appreciation of biblical prophecy. I know we're, we're covering a lot of ground. It can be a lot to take in. This is a little bit different this morning. It gets kind of intense, all these visions and, and strange things. But it really is worth studying because this is building our foundation for things to come. We're not quite done, though, because I want to get to this business of the abomination of desolation. We still haven't gotten to that, but we're, we're building the foundation. That is now found in chapter 11. So you can turn there. He keeps going. It, it doesn't stop. In chapter 11, it's a very long chapter, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. You can read it on your own. But Daniel is given yet another vision of the coming kingdoms. And this time it's super detailed. It's very detailed. For example, he tells how the third empire, which is Greece, it will initially have a strong ruler and then it will suddenly break into four parts. That's exactly what happened. Alexander the Great was the greatest, but after he died, suddenly his kingdom split into four parts. It goes on to predict in this chapter, and this is all fulfilled historically, that afterward, two of those four empires would rise up, one to the north, one to the south. And that's exactly what happened. After Alexander, you had the Ptolemies ruling Syria to the north and the Seleucids ruling Egypt to the south. And during this time, we're talking 331 B.C. to 198 B.C. During that time, the Jews, they were living under the reign of the Ptolemies. And it wasn't too bad. Life under the Ptolemies wasn't too bad for the Jews. They let them keep their sacrifices in the temple and their priests and all that stuff. It wasn't too bad. But things changed. In 198 B.C., under the reign of Antiochus III, when the Seleucids, as guys to the north, they conquered the Ptolemies. Now, the Jews were living under the reign of the Seleucids. And that's not so good. They started to persecute the Jews, make them conform to Greek culture. And things got really bad when a guy named Antiochus IV took the throne. He wanted to see all the Jews become like the Greeks, He also saw himself as a god. He thought he was God. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means manifest God. It got worse. In 167 BC, the Jews rebelled a little bit. And this this leader, Antiochus, in frustration, he destroyed or, or desolated Jerusalem. He tore down the walls. He forced the Jews to give up their religion or die. Specifically, the Old Testament was abolished. Sabbath observance was forbidden, circumcision was outlawed, and sacrifices were stopped. And then on December 16th, 167 B.C., Antiochus took a pig, which you know to the Jews, that's the most unclean animal, and he sacrificed it on the altar of the temple. He then dedicated the temple, Israel's temple, to Zeus, and he splattered the blood of the pig on the altar. And if you don't know a thing or two to the Jews, that, that's like the worst thing that could ever happen. It's a desecration. It's an abomination. It's like you could call it an abomination of desolation. The word abomination refers to something detestable and abhorrent, blasphemous, anything that desecrates God and his name. The word desolation refers to making waste, leaving behind devastation. And that's exactly what this guy Antiochus did. This was an ultimate act of blasphemy that devastated God, his name, his people, his temple. 
And amazingly, all of this was predicted in Daniel 11. Just read it for yourself. This is all very detailed predicted in Daniel 11. And he says this in verse 31. He's speaking of Antiochus when he comes and invades Jerusalem. He says, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And there it is, that verse 31. That, that's the same phrase that Jesus used, isn't it? And we find it back in Daniel. And the only thing is back in Daniel, it has a historical reference. It's talking about this guy, Antiochus IV, referring to his total desecration of the temple and blasphemy of God. But as you keep reading and you keep studying, it becomes evident that this historic event, and that happened in 167, that that historic event serves as a precursor, a foreshadowing, a type of another abomination of desolation, another event that is still to come. There is, you could say, a double fulfillment here. And this is where all the dots start to connect with this, this Antichrist figure, this little horn. A few weeks ago, I introduced you to the concept of the near and the far fulfillment of prophecy, and, and that's what we have going on here. God gave this prediction, and in 167, there was a near fulfillment. It happened. But as you keep reading, you keep studying, especially towards the end of this chapter, you learn, but there's more, though. There's more to come. There's something else going on. There will be another parallel abomination of desolation. And this gives us a picture of what that's talking about. But there's more to come. And all this comes together now in chapter 9. Go back to chapter 9. The last place we'll look in Daniel. We could spend more time in 11, but we only have so much time. But Daniel chapter 9 is where it all comes together. And this will hopefully seal the deal for you. You ever heard of the the tribulation time referred to as Daniel's 70th week? Well, this is where that comes from in Daniel chapter 9. He gets another vision of the future kingdoms of Israel and God's kingdom. Daniel himself, he was so depressed by the captivity of Israel, but he knows the 70 years are almost up. So he prays that God would restore Israel. He prays for Israel's future. And in response to that prayer, God tells him, a little bit about Israel's future. And this, it's a short passage, but this is, this is serious stuff here. Daniel 9, look at verse 24. So in response to his prayer, God tells him this through a messenger. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. It's very interesting. He gives this prophecy featuring 70 weeks concerning Israel and Jerusalem. And it's clear from further study that each of these weeks represents a seven-year time period. So 70 weeks at seven years, we're talking about a 490-year time period. Okay, so what's the purpose of these 490 years? Well, he gives six goals, six purposes. The first three all deal with sin. He says to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Sin must be judged, but for God's people to go free, he provides atonement for them that their sins can be wiped away. The second three goals of this 490-year time period refer to God's kingdom and his salvation. He says to bring in everlasting righteousness, 
to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. So looking forward to now the kingdom when God's people will dwell with him forevermore in righteousness. So the point is, in this little vision, that by the time these 490 years are up, that all of this will be accomplished. Salvation and the kingdom. Okay, that, that sounds fine. How exactly will God do this? How will he accomplish this? Well, through the Messiah. Through the Messiah. The Messiah will be the one to make atonement for iniquity, to put an end to sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness. He will, he will be the one to do this. And it's no surprise that in the next verse, we learn more about the Messiah. So verse 25. So he says, you know, you got these 70 weeks. Verse 25, he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Remember, during the exile, the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. They were wiped out. But this verse, which is in the captivity, he's he's promising they're going to be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. Jerusalem will will be rebuilt. And then after all that, the Messiah will come. This verse is predicting the coming of the Messiah. When? He says after seven weeks and 62 weeks. Put them together, you have 69 weeks. 69 out of the 70 weeks. Or 483 years. Now get this. He said, when was this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? That's the starting point, this decree. Well, there were many decrees to let the Jews return back to their homeland, but it wasn't until the edict of Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah in 445 B.C. that Jerusalem was really restored to a measure of sovereignty. So just just consider this. You take the year, 445 B.C. That's our starting point. And you add... 483 Jewish years, which counts 360 days in a year. You end up with the year A.D. 32, which many scholars put the death of Jesus. But there's more. This prophecy says that between this edict to let the Jews you know, go back and the coming of the Messiah, there's going to be 483 years. To Jews, that is 173,880 days. That's their Jewish calendar. And we actually know this decree was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. So if that's our real starting date, March 14th, 445, and we add to that 173,880 days, and we just for a few leap years, right? Guess what date you end up with? April 6th, A.D. 32, Palm Sunday. That's the Sunday during the week of Passover, when Jesus entered the city before he was killed. It's pretty staggering. Daniel actually gives a precise prediction of the very day Jesus would come to Israel as her king. This was fulfilled in the triumphal entry. Jesus entered the holy city and the temple as their coming king on the very day he was supposed to. But if we just study the triumphal entry, you remember something was wrong. It wasn't going according to plan, seemingly. The Jews, they weren't believing in Jesus. They weren't accepting him as Messiah. The nation was rejecting their Messiah. In fact, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he only had words of condemnation for the city. 
Remember this, Luke 19, verse 41. It says, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Why? He says in verse 44, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They did not recognize the time of their visitation. What does he mean? He meant they should have known. They should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And even if they had studied Daniel, they should have known the same day he was supposed to show up as the king. But they didn't, and now he was going to be killed. The Messiah was going to be killed. But guess what? Even that is predicted in Daniel 9. Back to Daniel 9. Look at verse 26. He says, Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This is a prediction of the death of the Messiah. He will be cut off. He will be killed. Amazing. Now, at this point, the prophecy jumps into the future. Old Testament prophecy often joins near and far events, even in the same sentence. We've studied that. Jesus, he's the real prince of peace. But after this will come another prince, a prince of evil. Verse 26, keep going. He says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. The holy city and the temple will be destroyed. Now, whether you're a preterist or a futurist, we've talked about this stuff. Everyone sees a gap here because Jerusalem was not destroyed seven years after Jesus died. This vision is obviously jumping sometime into the future. And it's evident as you keep reading, he's now talking about the end of days. The days when the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, when he reigns. So we're talking about that same figure now. And speaking of that prince to come, the little horn, verse 27 says what? And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And there it is. That's our last week. Remember the prophecy started off 70 weeks. And we learned about the first 69 weeks until the Messiah is cut off. But what happened to that last week? It didn't come. It was delayed. But here it shows up again. The other prince will make a covenant with Israel for one week or seven years. But, keep reading verse 27, but in the middle of the week, you will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here we have it. This figure will make a covenant of peace with Israel for seven years. But halfway through, he will turn on them. He will desecrate the temple, committing another abomination of desolations. He will ravage God's people. The turning point is that three and a half year mark, the abomination of desolations. And after this, it gets real bad. But after that, then the real prince of peace comes back. He returns and ushers in his kingdom. And when he comes a second time, then the Jews will believe. They will call on him whom they have pierced and believe. Now, I don't know about, uh, I don't know about all you, but to me, this, this stuff is, is phenomenal. It's staggering. You have all these scriptures written hundreds of years apart by different people in different places, but they all perfectly come together 
You have such precise historical fulfillment. I know for a lot of you this has been a real whirlwind study this morning. It's quite the rabbit trail. We're dealing with some advanced teaching for, for some of you. But hopefully you have a better understanding and appreciation of, of biblical prophecy, especially these passages that form the foundation for the end times. Jesus was not the first to reveal things about the end. In fact, he's merely building on what others had said, largely Daniel. And you have to grasp what the Old Testament says about the end if you're to have any hope of grasping what Jesus says about the end. But now we've done it. We've built this foundation. We've gone back to Daniel. Now we're ready to find out what Jesus said back in Mark 13. So turn back there. And if you're wondering, yes, that was all introduction. That was all introduction. But don't worry, we're almost done. This will be very fast. Because like I said, you build that foundation, what Jesus says, it just it falls into place. It makes perfect sense. Back in Mark 13, he says in verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay, now that makes sense. Jesus is merely building off of what Daniel was saying. Halfway through this seven-year tribulation, this 70th week of Daniel, this Antichrist figure will break his covenant with Israel. He will turn on them. He will desecrate the temple. He will identify himself as God. He will set up an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped. Mark says, let the reader understand. Mark makes clear that what Jesus says here is not talking about his disciples or that generation, but the generation to come who will witness these events who will see this sign. And when you see this sign, when that event happens, what comes next? Devastation, persecution, martyrdom. It will be bad. And that's why the response is very clear. That those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains of the wilderness, which the book of Revelation says, that's where God will supernaturally protect a remnant of the Jews during the tribulation. But they've got to go fast. Verse 15. He says, the one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. This is going to happen fast. When the Antichrist breaks his covenant and turns on Israel, it will happen lightning fast. You only have time to get your stuff. If you don't get out and run to the wilderness, you will perish. Verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days but pray that it may not happen in the winter. Sadly, those who are pregnant and those with small children probably won't be able to escape. That's the point. And if it happens in winter, well, all the more so their escape will be hindered. So now you look at these, these verses, 14 through 18. What's the point? Well, Jesus is just telling us this is the sign. They asked for the sign of the end. And here's a discreet, identifiable sign coming at the halfway mark, the three and a half year mark, and when the Antichrist changes his tune and commits this abomination of desolation, then you know it's going to change. Things are about to change and get even worse. The time of tribulation on the earth becomes one of great tribulation on the earth. Deception, persecution, and wrath all are unleashed on the earth in full force. Such that verse 19 says... 
For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Those three and a half years will be the worst the earth has ever and will ever witness. Many will perish. Many will be lost. It will make the first three and a half years look minor. And the only silver lining in all this is, like Jesus said, these things must take place. These things must take place, but then he will return. He will return. The disciples asked Jesus for a sign of his coming, and this is it. Sadly, it's bad, but then he will come. He will judge the wicked, including the beast. He will rescue the righteous, those who have placed their faith in him. The stone that is cut without hands will come and will put an end to all the kingdoms of the earth. And he will usher in his own kingdom, which will never end. And that is our hope. That's the end of the story. That's the end of history. But that's our hope. That's our longing for the Prince, the Messiah to come and to reign and to rule forever. Well, there's more to be said about this tribulation time, especially the last half, which is called the Great Tribulation. And we'll do that next Sunday. But just to finish, I want you to know something. You know, this morning we spent all this time mostly in Daniel, a real whirlwind study, kind of technical, perhaps for some of you a little bit challenging, but nonetheless, you know, we we built that foundation, we came back to Mark, and we just made a few simple points. That's it. it. So why do we do this? Well, I did this very much on purpose this morning, because at at least once, I want you to just see for yourself with your own eyes back in the Old Testament the precision and the power of biblical prophecy. It's so important to see that. Why? You you hear you believe in God. Well, seeing prophecy strengthens your faith almost like none other. You believe in God. You believe that God declares the end from the beginning. You believe he's sovereignly in control of all things. Well, biblical prophecy proves that. I mean, look at all these phenomenal prophecies that were fulfilled with stunning accuracy. Even the day of the triumphal entry. The same goes with the other 300 plus predictions of Christ's first coming. All given hundreds of years before. All of them specifically fulfilled. It's staggering. There's only one explanation for this. Biblical prophecy testifies that that this is real. The Bible is real. This really is God's word and God's truth, and you can count on it and trust it. He's giving you a a witness, a testimony in history. So as we study this this morning, my my real goal is that you just be encouraged, that let your faith be strengthened. God has given all these fulfillments already for this purpose, to let you know that he is real, he is in control, and the end has been determined. But be encouraged, those of you who believe and trust in him, and secondly, studying biblical prophecy like this also encourages you and convicts you to heed God's word. If this is true, if the testimony is true, then shouldn't you listen to it? All of it, because it's all his truth. And this certainly goes for end times. Many things are still to come, and they will come. Know for sure, this is how it ends. And then comes judgment. You've been given a window into God's plan for history, for the nations. The only question now is, where do you fit into that plan? Are you for him or against him? 
Are you among those who long for Christ to return or who dread for Christ to return? You see, the power of studying prophecy is that it brings this conviction that this, this is real, this is coming, this is true, and therefore all the more reason that you better make sure you are right with God today before it is too late. You can do that now. Like Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 says, also prophetically of Jesus, it says, do homage to the Son. Believe in Him. Trust in Him for eternal life. He's the one who lived and died and rose again to pay for your sins, that by faith in Him, you might be saved from what? From the wrath to come. So Psalm 2.12, do homage to the Son, that He may not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all who take refuge in him. You hear this? Make sure you have taken refuge in the Son now, before he returns, before it's too late. Well, there's more to see. We'll save it for next time. Let us pray. Our God, our Father in heaven, the Ancient of Days, we want to lift up your name and magnify you in praise. And that same goes for your Son, the Christ, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the one who is to come. We're going through this chapter for many weeks now, and every week our anticipation builds of the end. Granted, it will be a time of tribulation. We don't look forward to that. We know we will be preserved from that wrath, but we look forward to the real end when Christ returns. This world is lost. It is fallen. It is broken. It is united in rebellion against you. And The only fix is Jesus. He must come back. He must judge. He must reign and rule. Lord, we pray you just come quickly. Always in the meantime, we want to do our part. You call us to witness to this lost and dying world. May we do that by your grace, saving some from the wrath to come through your sovereign grace that you would open their eyes to see the Savior before it is too late, that they might do homage to the Son and take refuge in him by faith. May we be faithful witnesses toward that end. May we live faithfully. May we live righteously, following Christ, taking refuge in him. We thank you for these words. May it strengthen our faith, as always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.